0: We've all become familiar with the regular lipid profile of total cholesterol, triglyceride, HDL, and LDL, but what about subfractions? Are they something we need to be paying attention to? Joining me today is Dr. Evan Stein, professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and associate professor of internal medicine at the University of Cincinnati. He's also director of the Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stein.
1: Thank you, Larry.
0: You know, over the last few years I've personally have been inundated by different companies that want me to start subfractionating lipids into their components or their subfractions. And I was wondering if you could kind of shed some light on exactly what these subfractions are and and if we should be doing that.
1: I think the best thing to do is to start off with a just brief overview of what these subfractions are. And I think the focus has mainly been on the LDL subfractions. So, as we continue, I'll probably concentrate on the LDL subfractions. For all lipid-containing lipoproteins, the atherogenic components are those that emanate mainly in the liver and go through the circulation. Their cholesterol and triglyceride, or lipid components, are gradually removed as they are modulated through the plasma, and eventually the almost pure cholesterol-containing lipoprotein LDL is removed from the circulation and delivers the cholesterol to the cell, where it's used for many important substances, as we all know. The critical component to carrying lipid through the plasma, enabling it to be solubilized, is a protein called apolipoprotein B. Thus, we start off with ApoB being excreted from the liver, containing a lot of triglyceride and a moderate amount of cholesterol, and that's what we call very low-density lipoprotein, or VLDL. And then as the triglyceride is gradually removed by adipose tissue and endothelial cells, it becomes more and more relatively cholesterol-enriched and lipid-poor. So we now change it to LDL, or low-density. So we classify it based on the amount of lipid, which determines the Density of the lipoprotein. Potentially, all apoB-containing lipoproteins are atherogenic. The other important consideration is that the amount of lipid will constantly vary as the lipoproteins are modulated through the plasma, whereas there is only one apoB molecule per lipoprotein. The atherogenicity of these lipoproteins is really based on the number of ApoB-containing lipoproteins there are in the circulation.
0: Well, it's interesting you just hit on a very important concept, the number of ApoB containing particles. So there's a lot of controversy about looking for particle size versus particle number. And the more lipidologists I speak to, the more are leaning towards particle number, and that APOB is actually a good way or a poor man's way of doing a particle number. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, it's actually probably the rich man's way of doing (laughs) that. It's the better measurement. Um, I I like to translate or make the analogy that uh, really all of these particles are atherogenic, and discussing particle size, for example, would be like... Trying to discuss which is more lethal, an AK 47 or an Uzi or an M16 carbine. If we were at a gun show, it may be important, or we may be able to say one is a little more lethal than the other, but taking AK 47s away and replacing them with uh, Uzi submachine guns really doesn't do much for the total arms control. And I think in preventive medicine, especially cardiovascular disease, we're really in the business of arms control and disarmament, not in determining which of these atherogenic lipoproteins is slightly more atherogenic than one of the others. So in our approach, we really want to get the lowest number of atherogenic lipoproteins. I think as we'll evolve the discussion, we'll determine whether measuring Subfractions, or whether even our existing lipid measurements give us very good guides to basically disarmament.
0: Well, it sounds like you really want to get the number of atherogenic particles or the number of potential killers off the street completely. And I'm wondering how low is too low? I mean, how what do you consider too low in LDL? Because as you know, we do need cholesterol in all our cells. So what's your lower threshold?
1: Well, it's interesting. Having been in this business now for over 35 years, uh, having started the Lipid Clinic back in 1971 in darkest Africa, uh, dealing mainly with inherited disorders and well before most clinicians would have considered treating cholesterol important. uh, In the old days, our average Cholesterol was well over 200, and most lab reports did not indicate that cholesterol was abnormal until it was over 300. If we had started by trying to reduce cholesterol or LDL below 100, people would have thought we were crazy. Not only could we not get there with the drugs we had, but there were many, many people in the other fields, not in the lipid field who said that lowering cholesterol too much could be potentially dangerous. This hasn't entirely gone away, as there was a recent article about a month ago, which uh, suggested that low LDL cholesterol was associated with an increased risk of cancer death, uh, using some of the clinical data. So this keeps sort of haunting us every decade or so. However, as we've gone from people with very high cholesterol levels and treated them and then gone to the next level and further and further down based on evidence-based clinical trials, we now know that getting the LDL cholesterol certainly down to about 70 reduces morbidity and mortality from cardiovascular disease compared, for example, to lowering LDL cholesterol to about 100. So I think that, Uh, we have good safety data, down now at about 70. If one looks epidemiologically and physiologically, it's been estimated, for example, by Brown and Goldstein, the people who won the Nobel Prize in 1985 for their work on the LDL receptor, that the optimal LDL cholesterol surrounding a cell should be about 1 millimole or about 40 milligrams per deciliter And that's essentially the level we're born with when we use up an enormous amount of cholesterol for rapid growth during the first couple of years of life.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and with me today is Dr. Evan Stein, founder and director of the Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Stein, let's talk a little bit more about the LDL subclasses. There are numerous companies out there hawking their wares and trying to convince us that their lab assay is the best one. We have Berkeley, we have Liposcience, we have Atherotech. What is a lipidologist to do?
1: Again, I think this is a unusual and, I think, unique situation for clinicians because it's probably the first time that companies that manufactured tests have actually come in and try to market additional testing to clinicians, just as the pharmaceutical industry has done. These are not major national laboratories, but these are, for the first time, biotech-type companies that are financed, by and large, with venture capital, so that there's a slightly different approach. And as you say, I think that clinicians have been inundated with salesmen trying to get them to use these additional tests. The particle size issue, which is what was marketed really for the last 10 years, has largely been abandoned, especially by one of the larger proponents of measuring subfractions, and they have moved almost exclusively over to telling physicians that it's the particle number that counts. So now we are pretty sure that Size doesn't matter. As I mentioned, it's the difference between one automated uh, rifle versus another. Um, they're all potentially dangerous, so that it now becomes controlling the number of particle particles or atherogenic lipoproteins. Can we gain anything from measuring the number of particles? Well, I think we have adequate information from what we measure routinely. LDL cholesterol has served us as an excellent surrogate and is in fact the only lipoprotein that is accepted by the FDA as an approvable basis for any new drug because over the last 50 years, with epidemiological, biological, animal work, and clinical trials, reducing LDL cholesterol results in a reduction in cardiovascular disease, essentially no matter how you reduce LDL cholesterol. The LDL cholesterol starts deteriorating as an optimal marker once you start getting elevated triglycerides because now you've got an increase in the precursors of LDL, that's VLDL, or intermediate-density lipoprotein. The NCEP ATP3 guidelines has tried to address this as a very easy, inexpensive step before moving to something like APO-B, which ultimately may be the best marker of the number of particles. They did this by saying that when triglycerides are moderately elevated, above 200, that one should now not only look at the LDL, but if the LDL is within the Guidelines or the goals move to non-HDL. Non-HDL would be the cholesterol in all of the apoB-containing lipoproteins, and this is a more difficult goal to achieve, which means that you still have more particles when triglycerides are elevated, because LDL is now relatively reduced. So that it is very cheap, clinicians just have to take total cholesterol and subtract HDL, and they get non-HDL. It's also very easy from the guidelines to remember the goals because they're 30 points above the LDL. And we know that we've had goals for LDL of 70, 100, 130, 160, and 190. So now for the non-HDL goals, it's pretty easy. If LDL should be 70 non-HDL should be less than 100. If LDL should be less than 100, non-HDL should be less than 30. So it makes it very easy.
0: On that note, we are actually out of time, so I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Evan Stein. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.